Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn all about these amazing artists and creatives who bring the music that we love. And at the same time, we help out charity. For more information, go to the website, theoriginaldoll.com. While you're there, join my Patreon community. Big shout out to my Patreon patrons. You all rock. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. Don't forget to join me on Instagram, the.original.doll, and rate the show and tell your friends about it. My name is James Rodriguez. This is The Original Doll. I Iconography. All right, everyone, I would like to welcome back to the show returning guest and my friend and icon himself, Steve Lunt. Steve, thanks for coming back today. Thanks for having me back. This is a lot of fun. And what's great is that this episode is truly in your wheelhouse because we're going to be talking about a song, a couple of artists that you've worked with, personally worked with. I kind of wanted to go back through this because we're going to be honoring Crossroads, the Britney album and everything. One of the songs that was on Britney Spears's Britney album back in 2001 was her cover of I Love Rock and Roll, which a lot of people said, oh, it was the Joan Jett cover that Britney did. But newsflash to some people, and it's okay that people might not know it, but Joan Jett's was also a cover. Right. Let's rewind back because what I want to do is kind of give you the floor because there's so many things we're going to talk about. Britney's version of it, Joan Jett's version of it, the Arrow's version of it, and you got to work with Joan Jett and Britney in studios on separate songs and everything, not that specifically. So kind of let's rewind back and learn a little bit about I Love Rock and Roll, the original version back in the 70s. Right. Well, I think you've already told the whole story. So I think this <laughs> this, this interview is done. I'm going to go have dinner. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. The, uh, yeah, the original version, it's, uh, uh, it was released by an English pop rock group, mainly pop called The Arrows in in England. And uh, it was written by these two guys, Alan Merrill, who was the main writer, and Jake Hooker, um, a, a second writer on it. And that was in 1975. And funnily enough, it was wasn't a, it wasn't an A-side. It was like they'd had a couple of hits in England and they were kind of famous. They were kind of cute looking and all the rest of it. Um, and um, it was released as a B-side to to one of their singles. I, I, so for people who don't know what B-sides are, I know we've spoken about this, you and I have, but, exactly. but um, definitely a lot of the younger audience have no clue 
what that means. So back in the day when they had the physical single, it was like a seven inch record. It was, you know, the piece of plastic with a hole in the middle, the vinyl. Um, the A side of the, there were two songs. There was one on one side of the, uh, the plastic and another song on the other side of the plastic. So, <laughs> um, so you could play either. Now the A side was the, was the side that was promoted to radio. They said, this is the one you focus on, um, et cetera. So, so that's, and the B side was kind of like an afterthought. It was just there as a filler, you know, to always, there'd always been a B side. So people just threw another song on there. And I have a quick question. Yeah. Would B-sides at this time have been included in an album or was it kind of this is one off to put there? Like around that time, were B-sides also included in albums or were they just kind of one off? Yeah, a lot of the time, because a lot of the time it it, it just brought down the recording costs. You know, you mm. kill two birds with one stone. You got the B-side and then it also That's takes an, an album track. Now, obviously, with different bands, it was a, a different thing. Um but uh but with pop bands where it was more sort of more financially and and commercially viable mm-hmm. to to keep costs down like that when when the audience might not have been quite so um you know aware of of everything um you know they go for the a side and that's it and then they kind of listen to the album too you know but like they don't really put two and two together so for those um in back in these, I'm talking back in the seventies, I think people's awareness of, of things is a lot different mm. now um, than mm-hmm. it was in the seventies. So, so yeah, it was a B side when it was first released and that was in 1975. Then it was only in 1979, I believe when, when Joan Jett first um, recorded it, the first, the, the initial version she did was with, again, now people wouldn't know like, like the the biggest punk band in England at the time was called the Sex Pistols, and uh, and they were kind of scandalous, and uh, they had like three <laughs> record deals. And they got dropped from each of them for like bad behavior, and it was like, but but they were really influential. Anyway, the two guys who, in fact, I've met and uh, met in the studio after this, coincidentally, but Steve Jones, the guitarist from the Sex Pistols, and Paul Cook, the drummer, she recorded um, "I Love Rock and Roll." Joan Jett, this is recorded "I Love Rock and Roll." with those two. And that was in 1979. And it was again, released as a B side. Um, mm. No one saw it as being, you know, a hit or anything. It was a B side. She's managed by this guy, Kenny Laguna, who's um, a guy from, from the generation before Joan. And uh, so he knows all these old songs from the seventies and the sixties and everything. So he, he must probably was, might've been the one to suggest it. Um, mm. But I know she was aware of it because when she went, when she toured in, in the UK, I think she heard it. Um, it was on the, the arrows had a TV show at the time, a small TV show. They're trying to promote them into being these big, you know, pop stars. Like um, their version um, of the monkeys. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except it wasn't like an entertainment show. It's more like a music show. I believe I mm. can't remember to be honest. Um, and um, so she recorded it and it was a B side to, to one of her singles at the time. Um, and, and then, it just sort of lay dormant, like nothing happened to it. And then in 1981, like a couple of years later, she re-recorded the song with her, by then her background group, which is called the Black Hearts. Um, and I've also worked with the guitarist out of the Black, out of the Black Hearts too, he's a, a good guy. Um, but um, but yeah, she recorded it with the Black Hearts. Um, and that's the version that people know now. 
That was in 1981. And it went number one for seven weeks in the US. It was like mm. a massive hit. A big in the in the early days of um of MTV and everything, it was like one of the big, one of the big sort of, you know, videos that going. And uh, it just helped her establish Joan Jett because she'd come from kind of a it was a kind of a fabricated punk all female band, but in retrospect, quite influential because mm-hmm. Because they were all female and they all played their own instruments and everything. And Joan Jett was the rhythm guitarist. She wasn't even the lead singer. The lead singer Which is astonishing to me because in general, you would think, okay, this is just this soloist that happened to have been the lead in this other. Do you know what I mean? Like you would think that's insane. Yeah. She and she was kind of a writer in that band too. One of the writers when they, when they did original material and she was kind of a shy, she was like the rhythm guitarist, but she was definitely the most rock and roll out of any of them. She, you could see she had that, like that vibe, that excuse the language, that you vibe, you know, she mm-hmm. had it. I know you're going to beep that out, but, um, <laughs> uh, and, but, but she was in this group called the runaways. And, uh, and so she was part of this kind of scene, which is kind of punk, but still like, kind of a hollywood version of punk if you like it was kind mm-hmm. of you know glitzy and a little sort of shallow but they were but they had some really good records so when she became the lead singer and she just came out of a shell and suddenly she was and by the way, she's still kind of a shy, she was then kind of a shy girl anyway, when I met her, she, you know, but as soon as she put on that sort of leather jumpsuit thing that she mm-hmm. had and strapped the guitar around, the guitar around her knees somewhere. And, you know, she just turned into a, a rock and roller, you know, like with that attitude, you know, so, um, yeah. And, and that look came over really well on, uh, on MTV and the videos. So, well, and it really separated her, the aesthetic than yeah. what was to come the Madonnas, yes. the Janet Jackson, the Cindy Loppers. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And the crazy thing is, I always tell people, I go, with Joan Jett, Blackhearts, Runways, everything, because they're like, wait, what are they? So? And I'm like, Cherry Bomb. They're like, oh, I, and as soon as people say that, they start shouting right. it out. I also say, if you're a fan of the Go-Go's, things like that, the, this was before, and th- these were yes. young girls. We're talking like 15, 16, 17 yeah, years old yeah, when they, they really started young. out. Yeah. And I talk about how that's not normally how this this industry works in that situation you don't have 15 16 year old young girls playing their own instruments and then right. becoming these right. these rock stars and that's something that i don't want people to overlook because you've got to work with britney spears when she was at that same age just right. in general yeah. of going yeah. and britney is soloist versus a group of women that are peers right. to each other doing this right. so i just i wanted to throw that in there and when i was looking it up you know, it's funny how your memory like takes all these twists and turns over the over the years in the decades since. So I had to look it up, and um, and I thought that I worked with Joan Jett after I'd had a songwriting hit with Cindy Lauper, but it doesn't turn out to be the case. It was the year before um, I had I had any any success with Cindy Lauper as a, as a writer. So, but I'd been put together, and I can't remember how. I I really don't know, but with Joan Jett. Um, to write songs uh, or to, you know, try and write songs with the guitar player with her. Like there were d- different scenarios. And it turns out I actually wrote 
two songs with her, um, which weren't, which were recorded in 1983. They were written and recorded first of all, but they weren't released until 1992 as bonus tracks on a, uh, on, on a so re-release of, of one of her albums. I know, I know it's nuts. I listened to them the other day. They're so funny. They're such a piece of the time, you know, it's <laughs> such a little sort of a uh, section. It's like a little snapshot of the period. It's, um, I'm pretty proud of them. They're kind of, you know, it's, it's typical Joan Jett stuff. One is called Scratch My Back. which I co-wrote with Arthur Stead, who I wrote um, The Gooners Are Good Enough with uh, in later Love years uh, for Cindy, Cindy Lauper, and with Joan Jett. So we wrote that one together. Then we had another one called Who Can You Trust? You take what you want, get what you need, take and fire, gotcha! which was just Joan Jett, myself, and her manager, Kenny Laguna. So, um, yeah, so we had those. And uh, I had to, you know, when I, when I met her, she was uh, an amazing person because we were in the, in the rehearsals with her band and everything. And I, I just remember her being, this is my only memory of it, really, to be honest, uh, in the rehearsals, is that she was slumped in a chair. And I thought, oh, my God, she's stoned out of her head. And she might have mm -hmm. been, you know, she might have been, I don't know. But she looked so like, you know, beaten up and and stoned. Somebody took out um, a camera. And in those days, you only had a Polaroid. If you wanted to see it immediately, it was like called a Polaroid. You could, there were no, you know, phones to take pictures mm -hmm. and immediately look at it. But there was the Polaroid and and somebody took a picture of Joan. And, you know, she sort of stuck her head up when they said there's the camera and she smiled. And when the Polaroid developed right in front of your eyes, there was this like, gorgeous girl who looked off looked like she'd stepped out of a you know like a model makeup sort of mm -hmm. situation it looked like she, <laughs> you know and i thought and i looked back at her and then she was slumped in the chair again i said how can this be the same person it's like <laughs> some people are just photogenic like that or were you know in those days she was must have been incredibly photogenic and this was a time where you couldn't adjust it in post there was no, no photoshopping no, there was no, none no. of this stuff what, what you see is what, what you get, get. oh yeah like the britney song and your other song that you've done <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so 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 that was my that was my experience with with joan jett and uh and i was in the studio in fact i had background vocals on both those songs i think i can hear my voice all over the place my voice is so annoying and 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 and, and like and my voice is so annoying and it's uh annoying to me personally ultra annoying mega annoying that that when i listen to things i can there can be 10 vocalists which there are actually are on some of these things in the back doing the crowd vocals i can hear my voice as clear as a bell so well and the funny thing is and, and for those people if maybe this is their first time listening to you is that you at that point and in the 70s you were in a band city boy like you were a recording artist you were you know doing live performances and stuff so you also knew as a creative, but also the performer side where it's like you get on stage to do that. So the funny thing is, whenever I hear something and you're like, oh, I hear my voice or I know this. And then you can go back <laughs> and you're like, that was a stamp of the time. This was that. But I think it's kind of fun because I think something that I've learned over the years is so many people say the best A&R people 
are musicians, are people that know what that studio situation is. And the amount of, you know, collaborators that, that you've had that have said, Steve knows what he's doing. Josh was basically, Josh Schwartz, anticipating other Britney songs and everything. Josh was like, Steve was great. Because he would be like, you know what? This is not good. <laughs> Let's just go back and start this. Because you're hitting this too hard or you're doing that. Where you were able to use lingo that made sense. That it wasn't like, I want you to sound more Mariah Carey unless, you know, uh, Gwen Stefani. I'm just throwing two random right. names. I, they have yeah. nothing in common. But, but in those situations, so what I think is cool is... Then to have you go back and listen to these songs, you're like, oh, I hear myself. Oh, I didn't like that lyric. Oh, I didn't like this. It's like a trip down memory lane. You're like, oh, can we get rid of that part? <laughs> well, you know, I was blessed in a way. I was really blessed. I know it's a, an overused expression, but I really was blessed because, because I came into A&R later on in life in my 40s. And I had all this life experience and I, and I managed to, you know, I'd been a member of a band. You know, I'd been a songwriter, first of all, like, a, you know, and just not really doing anything. Then I became a member of a band and we had hit records in England. Then after the band, I, you know, became a songwriter and a, and a producer and I had hit records as that. And, and so by the time I, I came to be an A&R, I'd kind of done a lot of things. And uh, it was like a, it was like an apprenticeship of life. I'd already been through it, you know, as, about it's about the only good thing about getting old is that you actually you actually if you pay attention you actually do learn shit along the way you know if your eyes are open if your eyes are open 100%. and my eyes and with regards to music my eyes were always open like wide open i just i couldn't get enough of, of learning about about certain things so so when i became an a&r person for britney and i was talking to the writers and producers we were talking the same language. I mean, that was my language. I wasn't faking it. It was my language because I was a musician. I'd been there and done it. So immediately as soon as, and they're so used to A&R people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. Mm -hmm. that when you get someone who, who kind of sounds like he knows what he's talking about and, and, and you're making suggestions that make sense to them and they say, okay, yeah, that's good. Suddenly you have credibility with them and you can get that extra 25, 30, 40% out of these people because, because they respect you. You know, and you can, um, and you can get them to do things or try things that that if that if they were suggested by someone who didn't speak the same language as they did, um, they might not respect enough to even give the time of day to try it. You know, they'll mm -hmm. say I'm doing that. You know, so I, as I said, I was blessed that I, I didn't think so at the time. It took me a long time to get an A and R job, and I was, you know, pulling my hair out trying to think of ways to to get that you know and but it did come to me later in life and in in retrospect it was it was worth it so you know the only life lesson that i can really give people is this is that sometimes things just happen if they're meant to be they just they just happen you know it's it's you know that all the times i tried to be an anr person and i couldn't get that job it didn't work and then the one time when i wasn't really trying to get it is when i get it and it happened to be with Clive Calder at Jive Records. And the first person I work with is Britney Spears. You know, Britney fucking Spears is your first person, you know, from the age of 15. I mean, it's an amazing story, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm actually in awe of my own story sometimes when I retell it because it's, it just doesn't seem possible half the time. Well, and the crazy thing is when we look back and, and for those Britney Spears fans, you know, this Steve, you know, clearly I know it is that, you were there for the developing signing and all the way through 
past, you know, it was Baby, Oops, the Britney album, In the Zone, Chaotic, uh, Be in the Mix, all the greatest hits, My Prerogative, mm-hmm. all of these things, which Britney has continually through 2020, 2021, 2022, continue to go back and reference the music from then. And you were a part of that. You were helping her, you know, get this also on the scheduling side. Okay, we need you to come here. We have this artist. You're fighting. Let's get, you're fighting for, no, we should really work with these producers. You're fighting for this song. You really should. And and listeners, trust me, there's episodes coming out that are going to blow your mind about some songs that might not have been, might not have ended up on the album that became big hits and things like that. But I think it's your ear and going back because I knew of you through, the credits and i was like i think he's also the cindy lopper goonies are good like that that was the first thing that i thought of and it's like yeah. wait but i also know the brenda k star stuff so then it was going through that i'm like this man has touched upon so many different genres and had so many hits not just locally not just within the united states that you've been able to create iconography with all these artists for decades you've had hits older and this is not a jab older than I've been alive situation like that. Yeah, that is a jab. That is a jab. Yeah. A hundred percent. It is. That that is. And when you sign up for your publishing to me, I'm going to be nice about it. it. (laughs) But it's stuff like that to think that you not only had success from the seventies and then the eighties and then Britney in the nineties and none of those artists have ever been, Oh, this is Britney Spears who was, the predecessor, the person after this artist. Your artists have always been completely different people. The people you collaborate, Alicia is vastly different, you know, than even the stuff that you worked on with Mutt Lang. You know, all of these things we go through. So I think that that's kind of badass. And I like being able to go through these things with you as kind of a trip down memory lane because we know the songs, we get to hear from you, but here you are, this man who had this to be blessed to have these separate things. It was not just in the rock category, if you will. All yeah, well, you know, some of it over. makes, you know, I think for people of a certain age or people who are historians of pop music, they'd be interested in, 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 in a lot of the stories I got to tell, but I don't, I don't fool myself into thinking that, I mean, you know, kids of, you know, you know, kids are, are really going to, these days are really going to, you know, give a crap about some of the old stuff I've done. The only reason I really sort of mention it, because a lot of the time it's just, a, it's a continuation. I like to bring sort of mm-hmm. history into perspective. If I was a history teacher, you know, especially with the, you know, his, a pop music history teacher, this is the way I'd go about it. I would, I would go into detail about what other acts have done and, and what, you know, and, and if there wasn't uh, James Brown, then there wouldn't be Prince, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know, and things like that. There's, there's lots of, there's lots of things along the way. And and if it hadn't, you know, I mean, there's many examples of that. I don't want to go into too many, but there's a, a lot of ways where if I was teaching a history lesson, I'd connect those dots for people. And I think, you know, a few may, a few people might find it interesting. I think a lot of you, the listeners keep coming back and talking to me about how much they love seeing these connections, because that's the thing. It's connected. And what's been great is we as fans of even Britney Spears or let's say Janet Jackson have always referenced and the inspiration of other artists. Josh Schwartz talked about that. He said, with those artists, there's no music, you know, pretense. They're not like pretentious people going, oh, I never listened to that. I was the first one to ever. No, somebody did it before you. You know, somebody's going to do it after you. And going through all this stuff with you is kind of fun. But I had a a question, though, because 
something that is so bizarre with your Joan Jett stuff is the album was released in like 83. The CD gets released as this like CD edition bonus. Yes. Yeah. Did you find out ahead of time? How did this happen? Like, did you get notified right away? And the other thing is, were these versions kind of the exact versions from the nine years before? Did that technology change from what would have been put out in 83 to 92? Um, your second question, um, like, is it the same? Were there the same versions and everything? Yeah, I mean, I believe so. Uh, I don't have copies of the very original versions, but these sound exactly the same. It doesn't sound like there's been any more re-recording done. Maybe there was, maybe they were mastered slightly differently. It doesn't sound like they were remixed or anything. They sound, they got that seventies, the sort of that eighties, (laughs) that, you know, early eighties type of sound to them. So, uh, you know, and who would want to change them? I mean, that's, that's Joan Jett's signature sound, you know? So I think if you made it any more modern than that, it would sound kind of weird. Um, But no, I mean, I wasn't, notified i can't remember how i knew i mean i just knew i'd written a couple of songs with joan jett and and that was it i mean i there may have been copies and i don't know you know this this is your territory where you find out what was released where and what month and you know hopping out for a second as many of you know and steve has referred to this i go through archives i dig through old radio publications old magazine publications music catalogs and more and because of you patreon people i can get more and more old magazines and archives and everything so thank you much if you want to join me go ahead go to the originaldoll.com to do so now with this album it was first released in 1983 Now, the album was digitally remastered from first-generation tapes by Bob Ludwig at Masterdisc, New York City, back in March of 1992. Now, this is important because you can hear, specifically, this was digitally remastered from first-generation tapes. We're talking about how, at this point, things were going digital. Technology was changing in music, and as many of us know now whether it was CDs, vinyl, there are always those moments in music in which the way music gets produced and manufactured changes. This is one of those times. Back in September of 1992, Chris Morris wrote about Joan Jett re-releasing this album. Joan Jett, who is not exactly an unknown quantity at the major labels, has reactivated her Black Heart Records as an independently distributed imprint. It went on to say that per Kenny Laguna which was Joan Jett's manager. They were re-releasing her first four albums and that they are now being distributed exclusively via independence. The first two titles were originally released by the late Neil Bogart's Boardwalk Records, while the latter two were Black Heart sets distributed by MCA. Jett holds the rights to all four. And I found several different articles, one of them being Joan Jett Bad Rep. On that site, it talks about this. It's amazing, says project coordinator Danny Salazzi. The tapes have been compressed, so we went back to the flat masters. You can't believe the sound. In addition to the odds and sods packaged tentatively titled Flashback, all four discs will carry bonus tracks, newly penned liner notes, and complete lyrics approved by Jet herself. For favoring and a touch of authenticity, some studio chatter and count-offs omitted on the LP presses will turn up on the CDs. And the release of these reissues marks the first appearance of most of this material on CD, although Bellaphone Records in Germany issued some Joan Jett titles without authorization and from inferior tapes. So the 
Bob Ludwig master recordings and bonus cuts can be found only on the Blackheart issues. We feel like we're giving people a real good value. Jet's musical partner and producer, Kenny Laguna, tells ICE. How does that change overall when songs get added onto an album later, when maybe the piece of the pie, does it get smaller for everyone else? How um, does the business end of that change? It depends on the, on the deal the, the the artist has made with the label. Normally, the 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 deal that albums that uh, record companies make with artists is a, is a cap to the amount of royalties that they can that they're willing to pay. So if you put you know, and it's normally built around ten out of ten songs or something. This is how it used to be anyway, um, ten or twelve, and that would be negotiated in the deal. Um, and if you put more on, then everyone would get less. Like the, the record company was only going to pay X amount of dollars for all the songs on the, on the, on the album royalty wise. So if they put more songs on, people were going to get less and less and less, you know, Got it, was, it. it was just a smaller piece of the pie. Cause that's something that's great too, is not only we do, do we learn here about the creative side, but also cause there's a business side, cause this is a job. This is how people get paid. So I wondered in that situation, how that, that changes. And now we know. So why don't we, jump another nine years mm -hmm. <laughs> from 19 it's it's a nine-year interval at this point from 83 to 92 now we're in 2001 britney spears ends up don't forget if you're enjoying this add me on instagram the.original.doll or go to the website old school theoriginaldoll.com and join me on patreon because of you patreon supporters you're able to help fund this so that we can keep this show going so thank you so much and don't forget we do have merch we have some great original doll mugs with original artwork now back to the show britney spears ends up basically this was included on her Britney album, which came out in 2001. And it was also included in a scene and on the soundtrack for her movie Crossroads in 2002. How did it go from Joan Jett's version, because that's the last one that was released, right. to Britney covering it, even though the, we know the Arrows is the original, but right, how did it right. go to this next artist? Well, uh, you know, uh, certain parts of it uh, uh, kind of got lost in history. M my view of it at the time, um, being her A&R person was that it was suggested by Clive Calder, the um, the owner and the um, the chairman of Jive Records. Um, he had a habit of finding, you know, of knowing these big hits from a prior generation and saying, oh, okay, let's, you know, let's remake that like he did with Satisfaction. You know, there's another one and there might've been another one or two. I can't remember, but, um, but, um, and, but then I read, articles and interviews that Britney did saying, saying, Oh yeah, I knew that song. And so like, you know, they wanted it for a karaoke scene in the movie. And I suggested it. My, my gut feeling is that it was Clive because that's, I was closest to that. So I know that, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, but I don't know, you know, Britney's version. I can't, I can't really guarantee either version really, but I'm pretty sure it was Clive. It seemed to fit his pattern of doing classic songs from different eras. Clive himself, uh, for people who don't know um, Clive Calder, um, he was the the chairman, as I said, and uh, an owner of Jive Records. He he was a brilliant man in in these regards because not only was he a great businessman, but he, like me, was a musician, and um, and he was very. Um, musically aware i always always remember um certain things about him like in you know i always think that in the morning you know he'd be 
trying to buy and sell another company to add to the Zomba and Jive uh, repertoire, another company or something. Then in the afternoon, he'd be down in the studio talking to the musicians like, mm -hmm. like he's one of them, like he's in on the session. Now, that's extremely rare for, for people who, who are not in the business. They should know that. That's extremely rare to, to get the left and right-hand side of the brain working like that and to be respected by people in both areas. Um, extremely rare. So um, so he was brilliant like that. In fact, he was the best A&R person that, that I've ever met. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to have, to have learned, you know, what I did off the best as well, you know, because... You know, we both thought the same. We've both been musicians. So we both spoke the same language from day one. Um, so, uh, you know, so when he would suggest something like this, he would make suggestions to Brittany and Brittany and her manager with, with Larry Rudolph would say, yeah, sounds good to me. You know, they they trust his instincts, you know, mm -hmm. which is which is really good. So when he said do this and it's to me, I'm not so sure it's the best cover she could have ever have done. But um, mm -hmm. but but they trusted his instincts and uh and we all went with it and it's it turned out okay and we'll get into you know what i think about it and why why i say that <laughs> you know, when you yeah. ask me the relevant question that is yeah <laughs> and this is what i think is interesting from just uh the beat goes on to i can't get no satisfaction to i love rock and roll those three covers were not pop songs first and foremost right they were more i mean and those you know these artists are all like rock and roll hall of famers it wasn't they're covering let's say pm dawn or i'm trying to think of somebody right. that would be yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, the yeah. opposite sonically but so i think that that part is interesting that the covers that she did were never within that pop that pure pop sensibility yeah. and i think for me going back through i think that was a a, a conscious effort to not have britney covering Debbie Gibson, Brittany yeah. covering. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. He was trying to come up with kind of a left field um, pop hit. Um, mm -hmm. And and these songs with I Love Rock and Roll and Satisfaction from two different decades. Satisfaction was from the 60s and I Love Rock and Roll was from the 70s. But they were both pop hits, even though they were kind of, they were rock records mm -hmm. at the time, you know, mm -hmm. in inverted commas. They were rock records, but that's when rock was 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 pop. It wasn't mm -hmm. a separated out thing. So um, so you were just taking a, a big pop record from a different generation and and doing your thing with it and trying to make it sound contemporary. So now that we kind of get the inside of that, let's talk about, because putting together the Britney album with Slave For You, Lonely, I'm Not A Girl, all that, knowing what we know now and going through all these songs, including the bonus tracks with Before The Goodbye, I Run Away, that sort of stuff in there, you know, 2022, 2023 kind of eyes, would you have kept I Love Rock and Roll on there or maybe switch it out for something else and put I Love Rock and Roll as kind of a separate entity with the Crossroads soundtrack? Because we know no matter what, that was chosen because of the movie side of it versus it was going to be an album track right what would you do with it now the same as i would have done with it then my view then was that i mean i i preferred the kns songs to be honest with you as opposed to being bonus tracks this is on a musical level i would have mm -hmm. i would have chosen that as opposed to i love rock and roll uh to be on the album to be a, a bit more credible in terms of um 
you know, just its originality and, and and everything. And I think you know those songs were in the pocket for her vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I would have done that. But having said that, on a commercial basis, to have that song "I Love Rock and Roll" that all the reviewers and radio and everyone everybody knew that song, to have it on there. I seem to remember that some of the reviews were saying this is a kind of a ballsy move. You know, you're taking mm-hmm. taking a classic rock song and and you're doing it. And it was with Rodney Jerkins, who was an R&B producer. So it was a ballsy move. So I can totally understand why we included it on the record. But from from a selfish musical point of view, I would have had a K&S song on there. And Josh, are you listening? Josh, are you listening? <laughs> You he's like me. yeah justice for intimidated and before the goodbye and i run away he's That's like right. yeah throw them all on there justice um, for josh <laughs> i love it but i think your point though having gone back through all of those reviews people pointed out and there were people that just said this doesn't make sense why would britney spears have included yeah. a remix of the song <laughs> by rodney jerkins none of this should yeah. add up but this is the brilliance in music is that it does I think as a fan of the song, for me, I go back to this song more than the Joan Jett one. For yeah. me, I go, you know, even the arrows. Well, that's, more your, that's more your generation. It's more your, your formative years are built on these as opposed to, you know, as opposed to the Joan Jett version. Mm-hmm. The Joan Jett version is kind of old history to you. Well, and the thing is, but it's also like the arrows version and stuff like that. I love, for me, I always go back to music where it kind of, it feels like it has more of a soul. Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll is just like an anthemic song where, and I remember people were, and still would say, she's not a vocally talented singer. They're Mm -hmm. just like, she Mm -hmm. just screams. She's gotten that through her entire career. So of course you have Joan Jett and then you have Britney Spears getting, you know, told the same thing (laughs) that she can't sing. Yeah, yeah. But I look at it and what I liked is that it brought a song to me that was fresh and new and to maybe many people. Yeah, that absolutely. didn't know yeah. that song. Correct. And it just gave it some extra oomph, I think. But yeah. I think to your point, knowing that Jive always limited, and we're just talking Jive specifically, the amount of tracks you could have, which was just a general thing for the music industry. But we're talking Jive specifically. I Love I love Rock and Roll. It was a single. It was released with a great video. The single cover art where they just kept recycling all the same photos. And then the I Love Rock and Roll video shoot ended up being coming the cover for my prerogative and everyone steve has nothing to do with the marketing not guilty not guilty (laughs) it's not my department (laughs) unless you can sing unless you can sing and play an album cover an album sleeve (laughs) it's not i'm not guilty hopping out to give context to this so so many of you have messaged me saying james why is the CD single cover art that I have for I Love Rock and Roll the exact same one as Britney Spears' anticipating single? There are a multitude of reasons why labels choose to recycle photos. Some are, hey, this is only going to be in France. Hey, this is only going to be Germany. It's two separate, you know, kind of territories. We're not that worried about it. Others are when you're coming to an end of an album cycle, in general, just specifically speaking, a lot of times they're like, we're not going to pay for another photo shoot or the artist is not going to have time to do another photo shoot. So we're just going to recycle what we have, use that, so then we could just move on past that. That's where you get a lot of these videos as well with whether it's Janet Jackson or all these other people where you go, wait, why did that video, that music video, why was it like concert footage and like kind of a one shot? 
Many times it's as simple as the artist is on the road, they really don't have time to do a complete music video that we're used to having, where it takes three days, sometimes seven days. So that's kind of what it is. So those of you that are asking me to ask Steve, who worked at Jive Records, was Britney Spears' A&R guy at the time, he had no control in any of that. That was the marketing side of it. So you have that. But we're going to get right back to this. I hope you're enjoying this episode. On with the show. And that's the part that, like, I love. And I remember back in the day, we would hear, like, even just the music videos. Because, of course, with Britney Spears, you want music videos. You want that packaging. This being released as one of the, you know, let's say six singles from the album in certain markets. The music video, everyone's like, oh, she looks great. There's this oil scene. The label ended up pulling it from there. The director's like, oh, I can't talk about this. But there was always mystery around these things, which has been kind of fun because you go back to these things and go, mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, it's this this one Britney video, maybe too sexual. It's too far. And then you look at what it was then and you go, was it though? Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the post keeps moving. Yeah. And exactly. but I think it was. It was great. The video added a lot for us as the the fans of the visual style because growing up as an MTV kid, it gave me exactly what I wanted. It gave her this kind of fun rock look. Now, if you haven't seen the video, check it out. It's a fun video. I really like it. The visuals are just peak Britney Spears. Now, there were always conversation and rumors online stating, oh, Britney Spears, you know, the label said it's too sexy. We need to cut these things. Well, as we found out over the last several years from the people that were in the room, the people that were around, that's not the case. The label, as Steve said before, when they initially were pitching the idea of Britney Spears, it was always the the innocent, you know, sweet girl next door. And she won people over by having this persona where Britney Spears felt like she was your friend, you know, the, the head cheerleader, somebody that you can just have fun with, smile, and laugh. Oftentimes, I've seen the label get, you know, the lion's share of hatred. Like, why did they choose not to release this album? And then, as you all know, if you've listened for the past couple years, you hear more and more how it was the management, the management. And we had talked, and in these interviews with Steve that have been happening over a year, we've talked about that. Recently, Chris Applebaum, the director of I Love Rock and Roll, stated that it was basically the managers who said it was the video with the oil, it was too sexy. So this clears up yet another thing. So when we're looking at all of these facts about the entirety of Britney Spears' iconography, you see as more and more things have come out where everyone's like, oh, the label forcer do this, label forcer do that. In all these interviews and all these people coming out and, and speaking out about their experience, it keeps going back to management. So just keep that in mind. But have you watched that video? If not, check it out today and hit me up in the DMs. Let me know what you think. Back to the show. So then my question then to end this is, what kind of elevator pitch would you say for each of these versions of the song? Gotcha. Arrows was a formative version by the songwriters and for its time and most probably deserved to be a B-side as it was. Um, Joan Jett's was the definitive version um, for most generations. Um, It added the attitude in there, like the rock attitude that, you know, the non-singer rock and roll 
female star, like as Joan was. It was all attitude, all attitude. It didn't take, this is a lot more than three words, I know, but um, <laughs> it, it didn't take, um, it, it wasn't about vocal aptitude or ability. It was about attitude. Britney's version was recasting the movie, if you like. It was recasting mm. it um, with a with a different lead singer who who also sang with a lot of attitude, um, you know, in her own right. Personally, did I think that this is a purely a personal opinion? Did she have the right attitude to really pull that song off where it needs like a sneer and a snarl to it? Um, I don't think a voice is really this kind of not what Britney does, but did it have value for her audience like yourself when they first heard mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. 100%. All right, everyone have no fear. We have more with Steve coming up very, very soon. Don't forget to rate, follow and like. Now, everyone, we have a special bonus track section of this episode where we kind of give you some fun information about its song, a story you might not know. So I'm going to, because those people that love Cindy Lauper, this has connection. This is connection to a lot of things in general. So Steve, with this bonus track, let's just talk about this song. Okay. Um, in 1983, again, this is before I had any success. Cindy Lauper hadn't become really a, a, a big star yet. Um, but there was a, a pop artist um, by, who went by the name of Hilly Michaels, who had had a um, sort of a smallish, medium-sized hit with a song called Calling All Girls. I don't know how, but I hooked up with this guy and we started, we just went out and had a few drinks and we started joking about things. And in the end, we started writing all these cowboy songs, but like to dance beats. It was like, you know, for in the 80s, 80s dance beats. And we called ourselves Bonanza. It was Hilly Michaels and myself. <laughs> And uh, we went in the studio. I don't know. I don't know how this happened. We went in the studio and, and we got, and I got Cindy Lauper in to do background vocals. And, and the the other background vocalist was a a woman called Lorna Luft, who was the daughter of Judy Garland. You know, the, the, the the iconic, you know, (laughs) Judy Garland and, uh, uh, and half sister to Liza Minnelli, you know, that's, Mm. that's her heritage so both of those are doing the background vocals and it turns out that Lorna Luft is married to Jake Hooker was married to Jake Hooker Jake Hooker was was the writer uh, co-writer of I Love Rock and Roll which ties him right back to the the Arrows version the Joan Jett version and then Britney's version so somehow in this one crazy unreleased session that I that I did with Hilly uh under the name of Bonanza, we we tie in, we tie in somehow Britney, but by seven degrees of separation, whatever it is, six degrees, we got Cindy Lauper, we got Lorna Luft, Judy Garland, the writer of I Love Rock and Roll, myself, and Hilly Michaels. I mean, it's a a crazy thing. We did we did, and the song was called How the West Was Won, with complete with whip whiplash, sh- sh- like whiplash things, crazy. And he sounded like Johnny Cash. We did this thing as a, you know, that whole cowboy sound. And we had another song called Set Him Up Joe. That Oh, How the West Has Won It. That's right. The, the subtitle for How the West Has Won It was How the West Was Won. And then in brackets, in parentheses, Blood Guts Beans. Because <laughs> that's what blood we all screamed out in it. Blood Guts Beans. <laughs> so it was this crazy thing. And we're all, we only did it because it just made us laugh like, like school kids every time we started talking about it and we actually went in and recorded it see and and hilly michaels 
played drums, correct? Like was a yes. drummer. He was a drummer and... with a lot of bands. In fact, he played drums with the Ian Hunter band who, when I was in city boy, another six degrees of separation, we opened for them. And he was the drummer in that band then, like before I even knew him. Hilly Michaels was with Sparks for a yes, bit. He and was, the yeah. album was produced by Rupert Holmes. Oh, Rupert God. Holmes wrote You Got It All. You Got It All, that which Britney is the first song I did with Britney. Yeah. Oh, my God. See? Weird, It just right? makes sense now. Can I die <laughs> now? Can I die now? Nope, so many, nope. So many, so many tentacles. I've, I don't know. <laughs> We've only gotten to 1% of your entire life. <laughs> Everyone, I hope you enjoyed this. And check out those artists. The fun thing just, though, is the fact that you have Cindy Lauper singing backgrounds like just into that it isn't like a cindy lopper's because usually we just no. hear oh it's cindy lopper the right. fact that she and judy garland's daughter like this is the most odd grouping of people in general yes. but when you piece it together you go okay this this makes sense i just want to know how much drinking or or just <laughs> fun was being had that it's like what blood guts and beans like <laughs> yes yeah yeah uh, that's how the west was one blood guts beans the original doll. 